Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Number one, every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people I've mentioned, verses from the Quran, Hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Now, most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But once we get into the longer form episodes, which I plan on uploading soon, these notes are going to be a very uh, useful resource and an aid. So be sure to check that out. Number two, I would really, really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday, I send out a short email that shares what I'm working on or reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to coexistresearch.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. Alhamdulillah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us a great lesson on the 15th of Sha'ban. As we honor the night, the eve of the 15th of Sha'ban with dua, with ibadah, with supplication and acts of worship, hoping that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inshallah will answer all of our dua as a preparation for Ramadan. The day of the 15th of Sha'ban is also of historic importance because it is the day in which the Qibla was changed from Jerusalem to Mecca. What lessons do we learn from this historical event? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam in Surah Al-Baqarah and he says, We see that you are turning to us constantly by the Prophet وسلم, extending his hands to, to the heavens, asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, concerned that the Qibla is not towards Mecca. The word that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uses, taqalluba wajhika sama', that you are constantly turning to us in anxiety, in concern of this issue. So we will guide you towards a qibla towards a direction of prayer that will ease you. And it was in this day that the qibla was changed from Jerusalem to Mecca. Because in the beginning, as we know, that the direction of prayer was towards Jerusalem. And the Prophet ﷺ, when he was in Mecca, he would face Jerusalem on the side of the Kaaba that would put the Kaaba between him and Jerusalem. So as if he was facing both at the same time. So it wasn't a big issue. But when they went to Medina, which is north of Mecca or northeast of Mecca slightly, you have to give your back to Mecca to face Jerusalem. So what, is the, the, what are the lessons that we learn from this? Because we don't have these events, so we just put them on a calendar, on a date calendar, and just sort of flip the page. You know, on our calendar it says, you know, flag day, box day, turkey day, happy day, sad day, change qibla day. What does this day mean? Because I don't know what any of those other days are. I have to ask my European friends. You know, what are all of these days? What does this day mean for us? So when we see it in the calendar, we understand the significance of it. The historical significance, the religious significance, the spiritual significance, the ethical significance. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses the Prophet ﷺ and he begins by saying, We see that you are turning to us. That is the first lesson. That the Prophet ﷺ, even though he was who he was, and the greatest of all created things, 
he would turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala constantly. Constantly. Constantly asking, constantly seeking, constantly asking for forgiveness, asking for guidance, asking for forgiveness, asking for patience, asking for victory, all the time. Asking, 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 even though he is a masoom, even though he is the infallible. The best of, there's nothing in the created universe. We have to understand there's, there's nothing in the created universe. Even the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There is nothing greater than Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So when you say Muhammad, this is something that is big. So when he has been bestowed with all of this greatness, that Allah has forgiven all of his sins, has protected him from any uh, moral ailment, you would ask, well, why does he have to turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Why would he stand at night and pray until his feet were swollen and chapped and bleeding? Why would he beseech Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with such intensity? And when he was asked this, when his companions, because the companions, they asked the same question. He says, Afala akuna abdan shakura? Should I not be a, a servant that is in a state of gratitude? Should I not be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for what he has bestowed upon me? And he is also the one that said, none of us will enter paradise through our actions. They said, even you, Ya Rasulullah, he said, even me, only if Allah envelops me, only if Allah envelops me in his mercy. So he understood, sallallahu alayhi wasallam more than anyone, that the transaction between us and Allah, the relationship between us and Allah is a relationship of love and mercy, not a relationship of accountability. We don't want to be taken to account for our actions because whatever we do, it will not be enough. So we want to hold on to Allah's mercy. We want to hold on to Allah's compassion. We want to hold on to Allah's lutf, to His gentleness. That's why the Qur'an reminds us with this, beginning every chapter with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Even in the ayat that we listened to before the Jum'ah, Ar-Rahman is one of the unique names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because a human can be Rahim. You can have Rahmah as a human, human Rahmah. But you can't have Rahmanic, Rahman as a human. This is only a, an adjective that belongs to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Prophet ﷺ is turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's asking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The eve of the 15th of Shaban, as we said before over and over again, is a night of supplication, is a night of dua. Because this is one of the greatest tools that we have in our relationship with our Creator. To acknowledge our inequity, to acknowledge our limitless, limitness, to acknowledge our humanity, to acknowledge our need of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you look at the life of the Prophet ﷺ, from the lens of just the dunya, there was nobody that worked harder than him. There was no one that planned more than him. He organized his community. He organized the army. He organized the state. He made peace with the tribes. He defended the homeland. He taught his people. He strove in a dunya sense more than any human being could. When people would flee in battle, he would emerge from behind the barracks, as it were, charging the enemy all by himself, reciting poetry, عَنَ النَّبِيِّ لَا كَذَبٍ عَنَ إِبْنَ عَبْدِ الْمُطَّلِبِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ So don't think that calling to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala means you just sort of hang, hang out in the mosque and ask and it's going to happen. You don't say, Allah make me rich, Allah make me rich and don't do anything. You got to work for it. 
You don't say, Allah make me successful, Allah make me successful, and you're just hanging out. You got to work for it. We're not uh, Mary, alayhi salam. Every time Zakariyah would go in, he would find fruits. That don't expect that to happen. Okay, that don't rely on that. If it does good for you, keep it a secret, but don't rely on that. You're going to have to work for that. And the Prophet ﷺ, he understood this, which is why he would always turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is that balance. So Islam comes with an instruction manual. And the instruction manual is the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. How do you act this out? How do you take this lesson and act it out? Look at his life. Look at all of the things that he did. How hard he strove, how hard he fought, how hard he taught. But at the end, he would turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because he knew that no matter what he did, only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would allow it to happen. If Allah decides, if Allah wills it, nothing happens in the universe except if Allah wills it. And that's why we say, لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله. It's not just something you say to your children when they break something. We also say, لا حول ولا قوة إلا بالله because it's a lesson that nothing is going to happen. A will not affect B, B will not affect C unless if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants it to happen, wills it to happen. But for us is the action, is the effort. And if the greatest of humanity sallallahu alayhi wa had to turn to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for worldly success, for akhirah success, then how about us? How about our state when we need something? So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses this auspicious event, imagine the qibla changing. Imagine you come into the mosque next Friday and we're facing that way. That's in the life of a Muslim, that's pretty massive. Imagine if that happened. So Allah begins to teach us about this event by acknowledging that the Prophet ﷺ is constantly turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's the first lesson. And that is why he is Abdullah. That is why the title of the Prophet ﷺ is he is the servant, the slave of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Subhanallahi asra bi abidihi laylan. In the beginning of Surah Al-Isra, when we talked about the Isra and Ma'raj, Allah acknowledges that He has honored the Prophet ﷺ by referring to him as His servant. And that is the second lesson. Is that Islam is not the way we want it to be. The Islam is, that we follow is what the Prophet ﷺ taught us to follow. That's why we're called Muslim, because we submit to that. We don't make the Prophet ﷺ to submit to us. We don't make Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah is not something you put in your pocket that you own. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala owns us. Allah says that He has purchased from us our souls. He has given us this life. He has given us this, this body, this biochemistry that keeps us alive. He has given this to us, our rational faculty, our soul, our heart, our ego. It comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you don't take Allah and put Him in your pocket like some kind of trophy. And you make Allah what you want it to be. When something happens to you, you take Allah out and you yell at Him or you say happy things to Him. That's not Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It doesn't work like that. But we submit to what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks of us. We submit to the teachings and the, guiding, the guidance of Al-Mustafa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Imagine if somebody came now and told us that this is not Shaban. That this is... Uh, Safar or Muharram, we got all the months wrong. 
something massive like that, you, we wouldn't accept it. It's too, it's too big. But yet somebody runs into the mosque in Medina in the middle of the day during Dhuhr prayer or Asr prayer, two narrations. And while the people are praying, facing Jerusalem, they say, by the way, FYI, uh, new marching orders, you're facing the wrong way, face Mecca. And in the middle of the prayer, after the second rakah, they change, instead of facing north, they face south. And they finish the prayer facing Mecca. Now think about that. That's the story of the change of the Qibla. That's why they have this masjid in Al-Madinah called Masjid Al-Qiblatayn. The, the mosque of the two Qiblas. Don't ever say Masjid Al-Qiblatayn because that's the mosque of the two kisses. Al-Qibla in Arabic is a kiss. This is Qibla. The direction of prayer. Masjid Al-Qiblatayn. It has two Qiblas because this prayer took place. Imagine if somebody came in the mosque and said this to you. Something as fundamental as the prayer. And you see the obedience of the Sahaba. Now we don't have the Prophet alive with us. So of course, if we were there, we could kind of understand how, of course, I mean, he's, the revelation is coming. But you know, what's interesting about this story is that the Prophet himself didn't go to the mosque. It was another companion that went. And he gave them this news that the Qibla had changed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he says in Surah Al-Hujarat, Ya ayuha ladheena amanu in jaakum fasiqun binaba'in fatabayanu. And in one recitation, fatathabbatu. Allah ta'ala says, O oh, you who believe, in Surah Al-Hujarat, if somebody comes to you with false information, funky information, fuzzy math, something that doesn't sit right, let people know, notify them, verify what they're saying. Because we are a people of verification, we want the truth. This is an obligation that we have as a community. And this reminds us of something that is of the utmost importance about being honest. The Prophet ﷺ, he was asked, he said, Ayasriqul mu'min? Does the, will the believer, can a believing person steal? He said, Naam. He said, Yeah, it's possible. Ayazni al mu'min? Will the believer commit illicit relations and fornicate? He said, Naam. He said, that can happen. Will the believer lie? The Prophet said, La. He said, no. The believer can't lie. Think about that. Think about something that is more... Think about if, if you found out that I stole something from the mosque. That every time you come, the mushafs are missing. And then you find out after months that Tariq was stealing the masahif. You would think that I'm the most, how could the, the person standing here yelling every Friday steal the Qur'an? You would think I'm the most despicable of persons. But yet I could still do that and the Prophet ﷺ would still say about, but he's a believer. Yeah, and there's something good inside him. He can make tawbah and he can, he can ask for forgiveness. Imagine somebody, God forbid, that cheated on their spouse and was discovered. What would that do to that relationship? That's it, that's over. The fuqaha say that the act alone is an act of divorce. That there is no continuation of marriage after that. But yet, somebody can engage in that act and still be described as a believer. But the Prophet ﷺ said there's something that's even more despicable, more disgusting than that, which is somebody that lies. Which is why when you look in our fiqh, in the sharia, there are had punishments for stealing. There are corporal punishments for stealing. There are corporal punishments for fornication. 
And just as a side note, these punishments are from the discretion of the government. They are not mandatory. So all of these uh, Muslim, so-called Muslim thinkers that are parading around uh, making money and speaking contracts by saying we should uh, suspend the, the had the punishments, that's nonsense, that's stupidity. Because this falls in the category of a siyasa sharia, Islamic governance. And those rules are from the purview of the state, the purview of the courts, to enact or not to enact. This is a side note, because the Prophet ﷺ said in a hadith, approach the had the punishments with doubt. Meaning when you can find any inkling, any percentage of doubt in the case, and there's not 100% certainty, then you cannot carry out these punishments. So Islam is a package. But anyway, that's a footnote. That's my gripe with those people. You don't have to be a part of that. But imagine that Allah gives us these punishments for stealing, these punishments for fornication, but there is no had the punishment for lying. That's how bad... Lying is that it's so off the charts that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't even conceive, Allah did not give us some kind of punishment associated with it because the person who believes would not lie. Even the people of Quraysh that did not believe in the Prophet were offended when people accused them of lying. Abu Sufyan, before he was Muslim, he was accused of lying about the Prophet, about Islam. And he was offended. He was. I said, how could I lie? I'm Abu Sufyan. I am from the people of Quraysh. He was offended. The mushrik, the kafir, the enemy of the Prophet ﷺ was offended that someone accused him of lying. And today, we have people that wear the dress of Islam and speak the language of Islam and they are the worst of liars because they lie about our religion and they lie about our Prophet ﷺ. Imagine that. Will the, will the believing person lie? The Prophet says, no, no way. How can, how can you say, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah, Ashhadu anna Muhammad Rasulullah, and be a liar? Imagine that. The Sahaba, they understood this. So when somebody runs in the mosque in the middle of prayer and says, by the way, new orders face south, not north, because it does not even occur to them that somebody would lie. It does not even occur to them that somebody would lie about something so important about this. Imagine what that means for our context. The Prophet ﷺ, he says, as is recorded in the introduction of Sahih Muslim, It's enough to be a liar that you repeat everything that you hear. It's enough to be called a liar that we repeat everything that we hear. Every time someone says something to you, you go say, say it to somebody else. Every time you hear something, every time you see a post, repost. Every time you see a tweet, retweet. How many of us do this without even reading the original post or tweet? All of us, I'm guilty of the same thing. Right, but we have to think about these ethical lessons. That's why we have Jummah to remember. Wudakir. Just remind one another because we'll have benefit in this. That this uh, modern obsession with constantly talking and constantly communicating everything that we hear is how rumors spread, it's how false information spread, it's how you create anxiety, it's how you create wrong information. Which is why Allah Ta'ala says in Surah Al-Hujurat, if this happens, if somebody comes to you with this, 
فَتَبَيَّنُوا فَتَثَبَّتُوا Verify this information. Think before you speak. Think before you post. Think before you retweet. As if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is reminding us in our modern language. All of this from the 15th of Shaban. All of this from the Qibla changing. The importance of honesty. Of not lying. I mean, it's so simple. That's all we want from our children. That's all we want trying to teach them is just to be honest. I don't care if you did it, just let me know. Uh, save space, all of this kind of... But we have to look inside first. Are we honest? Are we people of, of truth? Or is it easy to fudge the truth a little bit? It's a white lie. It's, we give them names. It's a white lie. It's a purple lie. It's a fluorescent lie. It's a, a one micron lie. And we, we, sort of, we just call them different things, but a lie is a lie. A lie is a lie. I mean, it blows my mind that even the people of Quraysh that did not believe, they were offended that someone would call them a liar. I mean, that really blows my mind. It's not just a, a Muslim thing. It's an ethical thing that we all share. But the Prophet ﷺ ties it to one's faith. That you cannot occupy faith and, and lying cannot occupy the same moment inside you. It's as almost as if he is saying, وسلم, if you lie... At that instant, at that micro-instant, faith has gone out. And that's really, really scary. That's very, very scary. But yet, when the Qibla changes, they accept this. The Sahaba accept it right away. And they follow it. So we look at all of these lessons. We, we talk about turning to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We have to turn to Allah, all of us. Not just in the mechanical prayer. The salah, the namaz, no, not just the prayer, but to ask dua, to supplicate, to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when you need to. There are no conditions for dua, just do it. Whenever you feel like it, you just do it. You don't have to have wudu, you don't have to face the qibla, whatever, wherever you are, just ask. Because that acknowledges your need. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِذَا سَأَلَكَ عِبَادِيَ عَنِّي فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ Allah indeed is near when you ask for Him. All you have to do is ask. He's always near. It's us that move away from our remembrance, al-ghafla, our heedlessness. We talk about the importance of submitting to the deen. The deen is the way we, not the way we want it to be, but the way Allah wants it to be from us. We talk about the importance of honesty, not lying, being people that are upright. And then the last thing we'll say is that in this month of Shaban, the Prophet ﷺ was not more concerned with any month during the year as he was with the month of Shaban. Such that Sayyidina Aisha radiallahu anha alayha salam, she reports that when Shaban would enter the Prophet ﷺ, he would count, today is the first of Shaban, today is the second of Shaban, today is the third of Shaban, today is the fourth. He would count. And he himself would go out to observe the Hilal, to observe the, the new crescent moon, to be sure that the next day would be the beginning of Ramadan because it is haram for us to fast the day of doubt. The 30th of Shaban, we're not sure if it's really the 30th of Shaban or the 1st of Ramadan, we'll fast anyway. No, we, we do, we're not allowed to fast that day. We fast definitively on the 1st of Ramadan so that there is a break between Shaban and the month of fasting. So the Prophet ﷺ, he used this month to draw nearer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to prepare himself for the month of Ramadan because it's the month of Qur'an. It's the month in which we commemorate and celebrate this gift that we have been given, the revelation of this magical, unbelievable text that continues to guide us. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. And part of us getting ready 
is to continue in all, all fronts of our good deeds. Uh, fasting if we want to fast, uh, uh, charity if we're giving charity, uh, reading Qur'an if we're reading Qur'an, uh, night prayers, whatever we're doing that's extra, this is the time to push on all of those fronts. So that when Ramadan comes, it's like second hand. You're, you're in the groove already, so that you can receive more. Your soul can be uh, replenished more from the fasting, because although we fast, the body fasts, the soul is, it's like a feast for the soul during the month of Ramadan. That's why we fast, so that the soul can feast. You have to burn a little bit for that. But with that comes all of these openings, all of these magical moments in the month of Ramadan. Ido Rabbakum.